The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 51, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindnesses, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar." Okay, we are in Joshua 13. It's verses 1 through 14. I am not going to give you a great deal of typology today, okay? This is going to be just an evaluation of the uh, verses for the most part. This is entitled, Now Therefore, Divide This Land. Joshua 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains all the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Geshurites, from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron, northward, which is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashglanites, the Gittites, and the Ekronites, also the Avites, from the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Meara that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Afek, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gabalites and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from, ba from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamat 
all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Misraphot and all the Sidonians. Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. With the other half tribe the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them, beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord had given them, from Aurora, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Medeba, as far as Debon, all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reign in Heshbon, as far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead, and the border of the Geshrites and Maacathites, all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, as far as Salka. All the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edrei, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, but the Geshurites and the Maacathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. Only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance." The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. I know that's a lot of verses, but we'll get through them. Of the words of Joshua, meaning the book of Joshua, Arthur Stanley from his book Sinai and Palestine in connection with their history, dated 1883, says... There is one document in the Hebrew scriptures to which probably no parallel exists in the topographical records of any other ancient nation. In the book of Joshua, we have what may, without offense, be termed the doomsday book of the conquest of Canaan. Ten chapters of that book are devoted to a description of the country in which not only are its general features and boundaries carefully laid down, but the names and situations of its towns and villages enumerated with a precision of geographical terms which encourages and almost compels a minute investigation. In other words, because of the precision of what is stated in the chapters detailing the land of Israel, it begs the naysayer of Scripture to prove it wrong. There isn't just a smattering of detailed information, but an overwhelming amount of it. And it is so comprehensive and precise that either the author knew exactly what he was writing so that anyone at any time could pinpoint the locations with a bit of effort, or it is completely flawed as a description of the markings and borders he has laid out. As time has marched on and things have been buried or removed, some locations may be harder to pinpoint, but there is enough of what is written that can be substantiated even 3,000 plus years later that the correctness of the other locations when they were written down is absolutely assured. As we go through the verses today, we'll see that many of these names were not only written down once, but several times. And they were not just written down by being copied one account from another. Rather, they were written down in a way that would ensure that any disputes about the details could be resolved by a review of the details of a secondary account. Our text verse comes from Luke 24. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
The reliability of the Old Testament scripture is put to the test even in the New Testament. Again and again, the word scripture is used, and it is cited by Jesus or the apostles when referring to the Old Testament. At other times, Jesus or an apostle will simply make a point from scripture, such as Matthew 24. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus presents the flood as a literal occurrence. He speaks of Abel as a literal human. If there was an Abel, then there was an Adam who begot Abel. Jesus tells us that Moses, meaning the Torah, the five books of Moses, and the prophets speak of him. The entire Bible, the Word of God, calls forth with the words, Test me. See if I am what I have presented. If we do it, we will be assured of its veracity. As for the contents of our passage, Charles Ellicott makes a marvelous point about those who claim the books of Moses and Joshua were actually penned at a much later date. If that were so, there would be some real inconsistencies of thought. Using the law as his example, he says, We are also able to understand more clearly why so much stress was laid upon the necessity of adherence to the book of the law in Joshua's commission. The fact that these rules are not what human nature would at all be disposed to obey continuously, and as a matter of set practice, have they ever been observed yet in any conquest recorded in history? It is worth noting as a proof of the undesigned veracity of the story, it is a mark of thorough consistency between the law and the history of Israel. And if the authorship of Deuteronomy belonged to the late date which some claim for it, how could we account for the insertion of a law which was never kept and could not be kept at the time when some suppose it was written? From the days of Solomon and thenceforward, the relation of the remnant of the conquered Canaanites to Israel was fixed. The Phoenicians and Philistines maintained a separate national existence to the last. His point is well stated. If these things were written much later, even as late as 300 BC as so many claim, it would make no sense to include items which proved a total failure on Israel's part. This might be the case in a fictional story, but it would never be the case in writings that claim to be historical, accurate, and indeed holy. Trust the word, even if you don't understand it. When the Bible says there was a city or a well or an altar in a certain spot, you can bet that someone will go there, pull out a spade, and hear the tink of the metal hitting the rock, which is what he was looking for. It has happened innumerable times in history, and it continues to occur regularly today. I read an article just a day ago about something exactly like this that happened in Israel. Constantly, they are finding validations of the Bible in the land of Israel. Archaeology is only one of a host of sciences that validates the pages of Scripture. Evolution, shmevolution. I don't have enough faith to believe that we evolved, and neither should you. There is not one bone on this planet that has yet proved that inane yes. theory, which, by the way, is why it is still called a theory. Trust the Word of God. It is, after all, God's Word. And great things are always to be found in His superior Word. And so, let us turn to that precious Word once again, and may God speak to us through His Word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised.
I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, this is the land that yet remains. It's verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, now Joshua was old, advanced in years. This is more a paraphrase in the New King James Version. The Hebrew says, Vihoshua zaken ba bayamim, and Joshua old, entering in the days. Despite being a type of the Lord, Joshua was also a man, a historical figure who led Israel, but who also aged and eventually died. However, the events of his life are used to convey truths about the work of the Lord and the ongoing story of redemptive history. Verse 1 going on, and the Lord said to him, there are times in the narrative that the Lord obviously spoke to Joshua personally, such as during the battle of Ai when he instructed Joshua to act in the heat of battle. Whether this is the case now or whether the Lord speaks to him through a prophet, a priest, or some other way is not recorded. But the Lord does speak to him. Verse 1 continues, you are old, advanced in years. You, old, entering in the days. There are things to consider about these words. Joshua isn't nearly as old as Moses was at the time of his death. It is likely that Joshua was around 100 years old at this point. Moses was 120 when he died, and his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Despite being aged, he was not old. On the other hand, Joshua will die at the same age as Joseph did, 110 years old. Some years before that, he is already considered by the Lord as old. Therefore, being old is not so much dependent on the actual number of years a person lives, but the state of the person at any given time. In 1 Kings 1.15, it says that David was very old, and yet he was only about 70 when he died. The state of Joshua demands that certain things must be done. The conquests he made have established a foothold in the land, and that is great enough so that it can be divided among the tribes. And yet, there are many people groups that have not yet been subdued in the land, and some never will be. Despite this, the instructions found in the law intended for the land to be solely the possession of the people of Israel. Therefore, the division of the land, even before it is wholly subdued, now falls to Joshua. Verse 1 continues, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. And the land left much very to possess. Despite his great successes and the many conquests he led, a significant amount of land remained outside of the control of Israel. This is unlike the land east of the Jordan, which was wholly subdued under Moses. It is a marvelous parallel to the state of things for those who come to Christ. In Christ, the inheritance is secured because of Christ's fulfillment and ending of the law. And yet, there are battles to be won and enemies to be subdued after coming to him. There's no contradiction in this at all. It is exactly how the New Testament portrays the state of things. There is total victory and assured salvation in Jesus Christ. And yet there is a constant war being waged against those who are in Christ. Anyone who doesn't get this either feels he must earn his salvation, meaning Christ's victory was not total, which is impossible to do, or he feels he can lose his salvation meaning the struggles of life in Christ can overcome what Christ has done, which is likewise impossible. As for the literal history of Israel's unconquered land, verse 2, this is the land that yet remains. Zot ha'aretz ha'nisharet. This, the land, the remaining. 
This clause introduces what will be said through verse 7. As such, this is a parenthetical thought which terminates with the words of verse 7. Verse 2, this is the land. Verses 2 through 6, naming the land. Verse 7, now therefore, divide this land. Verse 2 continues, all the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Geshurites. Kal gililot ha plishtim vekal ha geshuri. All circles the Philistines and all the Geshuri. A new word is introduced here, gelila. It comes from galal, meaning to roll. Thus it is a region like a circle, as if encircled by borders. As for the people groups, the name Philistine comes from palash, signifying to roll in the dust as an act of mourning. They are the grievers. The name Geshur comes from an unused root meaning to join, thus it may mean bridge. Some think that these from Geshur are the same as those mentioned in Joshua 12:5, being in the northeast area of Canaan. Others think they may be the same people group, but a portion of them settled in the south. That seems more likely for two reasons. The first is that the Geshuri is mentioned in 1 Samuel 27, verse 8, and it is clearly in the southern area of Canaan. Also, it is because the region of these groups is next described. That region is, verse 3, from Sihor, which is east of Egypt. Min ha-Sihor asher al-Penei Mitzrayim, from the Sihor, which upon face Egypt. The Sihor probably derives its name from Shahar, to be black. If so, it is a dark, turbid river. It is the turbid. This is the same river known as the Wadi of Egypt in Joshua 15, verse 4. Today is known as Wadi el-Arish that flows into the Mediterranean Sea from the Sinai Peninsula. That border goes, verse 3 continues, as far as the border of Ekron northward. Ve'ad gebul Ekron tsafona, and unto border Ekron northward. Ekron comes from Akar to pluck up or uproot, but that is from the same as Eker, meaning an offshoot or descendant. Hence, the name could either mean offshoot or uprooted. Zephaniah will make a play on the name later in scripture saying, Ekron shall be uprooted. Ekron is the most northern of the five cities of the Philistines. Verse 3 continues, which is counted as Canaanite. Le Kana'ani Techashev, to the Canaanite reckoned. The words could be referring to the previous clause when speaking of Ekron. However, it is more likely tied to the next clauses. This would mean that the named people groups are regarded as Canaanites, even if they are not specifically descendants of Canaan. In other words, they are subject to conquest. They are, verse 3 continues, the five lords of the Philistines. Hamashet Sarne Plishtim, five lords Philistines. The word Seren is introduced here. It signifies a lord, but also an axle. Hence, the word may indicate that the lord is the central point upon which the city turns. These five lords plus one people group are, verse 3 continues, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, and the Ekronites. Also, the Avites. The names are all in the singular in the Hebrew, not plural. Also, the word also is not in the text. As for their names, Gaza, or in Hebrew, Aza, means strong. Ashdod means ravager. Ashkelon comes from shakel, meaning to weigh, as in weighing money. Hence, it is the market. Gath means winepress. Ekron was named in the previous verse. And these 
are the five groups of the Philistines. Along with them are named the Avites. Their name comes from Ava, to bend or to twist, but also a distortion or a ruin or even perversity or moral evil. They may be the ruiners, but I would think the name could extend to mischief makers. They are included here because of what is said in Deuteronomy 2, verse 23. And the Avim, who dwelt in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and dwelt in their place, it says there. Apparently, they continue to exist in limited number, even if mostly destroyed and driven out. The details continue with verse 4, from the south, all the land of the Canaanites. The actual division of the verses is debated. Some place the words from the south with the previous clause. Some place them with the words following. The Greek, instead of miteman or from the south, says from teman, which is the proper name of a location belonging over in Edom. No matter which, it immediately follows with the land of the Canaanites. That extends northward, verse 4 continues, and Meara, that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Afek to the border of the Amorites. Um ara ashur lat sidonim ad afeka ad gabul ha emori and meara which to the Sidonians unto afek unto the border the Amorite meara means cave it is a region with a cave near Lebanon several possible sites have been suggested Sidon comes from tsud meaning to hunt thus it is a hunting place. As it is on the coast, it means to hunt fish, and thus it is fishery. Afek comes from afak, meaning to hold or to be strong, and so it means fortress. And Amorite signifies renown. The idea here is all of the Canaanites from Ekron north to Sidon and then eastward to Afek, which may be the northern area of the Bashan and which extends to the area of Mount Hermon. However, there are at least three different locations known as Afek, and so this is a bit of guesswork. Verse 5, the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamat. Depending on the root word, Gebal means either boundary or hill of God. <laughs> Lebanon means white one or even mountain of snow. Baal God means Lord of Fortune, with a secondary meaning of Lord of the Invasion. Hermon means sacred. Hamat means defense or citadel. Is your head hurting yet? I know mine was by, you know, an hour and a half after getting into this sermon and going through all of these names. Gebal is also known as Byblos, and it is a city on the Mediterranean, north of Sidon, even north of Beirut. So it's way north in Lebanon today. It is seen in 1 Kings 5, verse 18, and Ezekiel 29, verse 9. The borders mentioned go eastward and extend to Mount Hermon, and even northward to Hamat, which was the northern location spied out by the 12 tribes all the way back in Numbers 13. <laughs> it was recorded as the northern border in Numbers 34. Verse 6, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Misrafot and all the Sidonians. The brook Misrafot or Misrafot Ma'im means burning of waters. It was seen in Joshua 11 verse 8. This explains the people who live in those areas. It is inclusive of the Sidonians and the Phoenicians. What is said about all these people and the named locations is obviously conditional. These areas were never fully cleansed of inhabitants, even if they were controlled by Israel, such as during the time of David and Solomon. Therefore, 
What the Lord next says is only assured if Israel itself acted. Verse 6 continues, Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel. It is emphatic, and it refers to all of the peoples and places mentioned since verse 2. I will drive them out. The Lord promises to do so, but Ellicott is right in how he presents it, saying, the promise of driving them out from before the children of Israel supposes that the Israelites must use their own endeavors, must go up against them. If Israel, through sloth or cowardice, let them alone, they are not likely to be driven out. We must go forth in our Christian warfare, and then God will go before us. He is right about this in both that which was promised to Israel and our own situation as believers. It is as common as wind gusts in a hurricane for Christians to claim success in something, but then never put forward any effort in order to obtain what they have claimed. But more directly, we are told about spiritual warfare that we are in, and yet without the proper tools to wage that war, one cannot triumph. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes of truth righteousness, the gospel, faith, surety of salvation, and the employment of the word of God. Each one of these things finds its basis in knowing the word and applying it to our lives. Israel may have known how to fight, but failed to engage the battle. Or Israel may have faced a battle and not known how to fight. Are we any different in our spiritual walk? Not in the least. What we are seeing in Joshua is a reflection of what we are called to in our own lives. This is something that was already perfectly stated all the way back in Numbers 33. Here's what it says there. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places." Before I go on, think of those people that I talked about in Pakistan today. We got that report from them. And what are these Hindus that just converted to Christ doing? They're going home and they're destroying the idols in their house. They're clearing out the wickedness so that they can let Christ in. Israel failed to do this. And we should not lose sight of our own lives. We need to do this as well. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it. For I have given you the land to possess, and you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There, everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides. Think of whatever vice you're carrying with you in Christ. Same principle applies. And they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. The Lord will clear out the inhabitants if Israel will act in driving out the inhabitants. The Lord will go before us in our spiritual battles if we are simply willing to follow and be set for the battles that we are to face. As for Joshua, the Lord continues saying, verse 6 going on, only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. This is more an explanation than a translation. It reads, Rak, hafilah le Yisrael be ka only cause it to fall to Israel in inheritance according to which I commanded you. The inheritance will fall by lot, 
but only because Joshua will cause the lots to fall. With that, the parenthetical thought in verses 2 through 6 is complete, and the closing thought of the section is provided. Verse 7, Now therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The meaning is all of the land just named, not just that which is subdued. In other words, the land is to be divided and those areas not yet subdued were to be handled by the tribe who received the particular allotment. That is exactingly seen in Joshua 17, which I typed this past week. The main kings and fortifications had been subdued. The structure of the societies within Canaan had been sufficiently destroyed so that those remaining would find it difficult to organize and fight against Israel. And so the land was now to be parceled up and granted to those who had not received an inheritance east of the Jordan. For example, Judah and Simeon will receive their allotment in Joshua 15 and 19. But then it will say this in Judges 1 verse 3. So Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. These tribes were willing to put forth the effort, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Other tribes failed to obey, and they never did drive out the inhabitants. That will be seen in just a few (laughs) verses. It is time to get about dividing the land. It is ready to be inhabited, so get it done. Enough battles have been fought to understand that the rest of the battles you face will be won. I will drive out the rest if you will just get started, and you cannot fail if you will get up and get going. Do not be afraid, dismayed, or downhearted. Be confident in my word. Great things I will be showing. If you sit idly about, you cannot expect a victory. But if you head out confident in the truth of my word, then you shall prevail Test me in this and you will see. Just have trust and faith in what you have heard. Our second thought today, nevertheless, verses 8 through 14. There is a ton of repetition from previous sermons in these verses set before us. It even closely mirrors much of what was said in Joshua 12, 1 through 6, which we just went through. It may seem tedious and redundant. Haven't we just heard this? This will continue throughout the allotment to each individual tribe. But the specificity is necessary. There's not only typology for us to consider, but it is also a set of actual inheritances that had to be precisely detailed for a group of people that actually existed. Just as we have extremely precise descriptions in the legal recordings of our land deeds, Israel also needed to maintain such records. I'll give you a perfect example of this. I was talking to Ron about it this morning. When the house that I'm living in right now was bought by our parents, it was built at a time when they really didn't check things, okay? And so the guy built two houses on a single lot, which nowadays is called non-conforming, right? But in addition to that, he kind of went over into the neighbor's property. That's a problem, okay? You can't do that anymore. You have specific things. This is way back in 1948, folks. Nobody lived on Siesta Key back then, okay? It was just nobody cared. But eventually somebody cared. And so somebody had to go next door and say, would you sell us a few feet of property so that we can keep this house that we want to buy? There you go. That's why we have precise records. The Lord is being very precise for reasons just like this. Thus, we need to be patient as we go through these allotments, understanding that there was a need for precision in order to ensure harmony within and among the tribes of Israel. Verse 8. 
with the other half-tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance. As an explanatory paraphrase, the New King James Version adds in the words that are not in the text. It says, Imo ha-revuni ve-had-gadi lakehu nachalatam. With him, the Reubenite and the Gadite took their inheritance. The words here need to be taken with the last words of verse 7. Therefore, it referred to Manasseh. As such, the with him is referring to Manasseh. One half of him was divided east of the Jordan, while the other half was west of the Jordan. Verse 8 continues, which Moses had given them, beyond the Jordan, eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord had given them. The Hebrew reads more precisely, which had given to them Moses, inside the Jordan, eastward, according to which had given to them Moses, servant Jehovah. In other words, the land had been given to them by Moses, meaning the two and a half tribes, and then it had been divided by Moses among them. It wasn't just that they all had been given the expanse of land and could settle wherever they wanted, but that they had been given the expanse of land, which was then carefully, even meticulously described and apportioned out. In other words, these tribes together had received their inheritance, and then each tribe individually had received its inheritance. The entire expanse was, verse 9, from Aurora, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Medeba as far as Debon. The land described in verses 9 and 10 is the southern area of the land, Grant, which is east of the Jordan. It comprises the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites. As a reminder, Aror means stripped, bare, or naked. Arnon means roaring stream. The type of ravine is a nachal, signifying a wadi. The word comes from the verb nachal, signifying to take possession. The noting of the city, which is in the midst of the ravine, is most probably speaking of Aror, the same city just mentioned. It is both on the bank of the ravine and within the ravine. Hence, it is a double city. If this is correct, then Isaiah refers to this double city in Isaiah 17. He says, the cities of Aurora are forsaken, plural cities. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Next, Hamishur, or the plain, is a word that signifies a level place. Keep thinking of Christ, because we've done this same stuff in, what, five sermons already? Think of Christ. The Nachal is an inheritance. Think of the inheritance in Christ. When you see the plain, think of something that is on the level, right? It figuratively speaks of uprightness. It is the place of uprightness. Mediba means something like waters of rest, and Debon means pining. Also included are, verse 10, all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border of the children of Ammon. Sihon means something like tempestuous or warrior. Heshbon means intelligence. Ammon means a people. Everything that belonged to the kingdom of Sihon was subdued, and the inhabitants were completely destroyed, even right up to the border of the land. Also included in this large tract was, verse 11, Gilead, and the border of the Geshurites and the Maakathites, all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan as far as Salka. The land described in verses 11 and 12 is the northern area of the land grant east of the Jordan. It comprises the kingdom of Og in the Bashan. With this in mind, Gilead means perpetual fountain. The Geshurite possessed a small area in the northeast corner of Bashan, 
It was adjoined to the area of Argov, which is seen in Deuteronomy 3, and to the kingdom of Iran, meaning Syria, as is going to be seen in 2 Samuel 15. As we earlier saw, Gesher means bridge. The Maakathite dwelt on the southwest area of Mount Hermon, where the Jordan finds its source. Maaka means oppression. Also, Bashan is prefixed by an article, the Bashan. It means the place of fertile soil. Think of the Bible. Salka means walking. With these borders defined, it next says, this is, verse 12, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtarot and Edrei. As we saw in the last chapter, Og comes from Uga, which is a round baked cake. That comes from Ug, meaning to bake. His reign was from both of these cities, probably having a palace in each. Ashtarod is believed to signify unity of instructions and thus one law. Edrei means something like mighty. Verse 12 going on, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. The wording is rather precise. It says, who nishar miyater refaim vayakem moshe vayorishem. He remained from remnant the refaim and struck them, Moses, and dispossessed them. It is two separate thoughts. Og alone remained of the Rephaim. Moses both destroyed Og and those he reigned over. If you compare the corresponding verses in chapters 12 and 13, you can see the similarities and the differences. From Joshua 12, and the other king was Og, king of Bashan and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants who dwelt at Ashtarot and Edrei, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salka, over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maakathites, and over half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. And then from Joshua 13, Gilead and the border of the Geshurites and Maakathites, all Mount Hermon and all Bashan as far as Salka, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtarot and Edrei, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast these out. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you that there are differences. The guy doesn't just copy one thing again and again. They give more information. They give different information. They detail the information differently so that there is no doubt that this land is being described and you can go from one side or another and you can say this is exactly where it was. There is no doubt among the people of Israel and to this day, there is no doubt when they find a place that that is what the Bible is describing. It is unbelievable. Though it is essentially the same thing being said in both Joshua 12 and 13, it is purposefully restructured as if to ensure that what is said in one place is fully understood by saying it again a bit differently in another place. Therefore, if one was to be twisted or incorrectly analyzed, the other would provide support to correct the error. The same is true with the previous verses concerning Sihon and his territory. There are some larger differences in the description of his kingdom, but together they form a full picture for the tribes to ensure that the scope of the entire land, as well as that of the individual parcels, is perfectly understood. With that, a curious negative note is now entered into the account. Verse 13, very sad word, nevertheless. The children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maakathites, but the Geshurites and the Maakathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. The word translated as nevertheless is simply 
and. Also, the names are in the singular in the first clause, and they are stated by their principal name in the second clause. It would more rightly say, and the sons of Israel did not possess the Geshurite and the Maakathite, and Geshur and Maakath dwell in the midst of Israel until this day. So the word nevertheless is just fine. Even if it's and in the Hebrew, it's just fine. The curiosity of saying this comes from the fact that these two people groups were not a part of the kingdom of Og. Rather, they dwelt on his border, as noted in verse 12.5. However, the matter is resolved by the fact that they were located within the borders specified by the Lord as belonging to Israel. Other such notes of failure will be seen as the Bible continues. Verse 14, only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance. This is explicitly stated now, while referring to the land east of the Jordan to explain why Levi is not included in any land inheritance there. This is repeated in the allotment to Manasseh on the east side in verses 13.33 and concerning all other allotments west of the Jordan in verse 14.4. It will then be addressed as the main subject of chapter 21. The narrative is being extremely precise in dealing with the Levites, as in the book of Numbers does in particular, but elsewhere in Scripture as well. Verse 14 finishes with, The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. The translation here is rather poor. It was copied from the King James Version, which got much of it wrong. It is emphatic, and it reads, Ishe Yehovah Elohei Yisrael, who... Nachalato ha'ashur deber lo, fire offerings of Jehovah, God of Israel, it, his inheritance, as he said to him. First, not all offerings are sacrifices. Second, there is an emphasis on the fact that the offerings are Levi's inheritance, as they belong to the Lord, and so the Lord is Levi's inheritance. Therefore, it says in Deuteronomy 10.9, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. Also, the words appear as if the Lord was speaking directly to Levi, as he said to him. The Levites are uniquely set apart as the Lord's, and it was by the word of the Lord that this came about. As for the typology of what is presented in these verses, it has been explained, and in some cases, it has been re-explained several times. Since we just went through much of it at the beginning of chapter 12, there's no point in going through it all again. It is true that there are minor differences that could be evaluated for typology, but the overall message of the presentation shouts out details that we know refer to Jesus. He is the focal point of all that is given. And yet, we cannot ignore the fact that these details were also minutely provided to Israel to ensure Israel would have exact guidelines and particulars to avoid any land conflict later in their own history. Hence, the reiteration of the details will allow for those who might argue to reference another account to overcome any disputes that might arise. As for our own surety of what is presented, remember what was said by Arthur Stanley and Charles Ellicott as we open today. What the Bible presents calls out to be tested. It calls out to be verified. And for thousands of years, this is exactly what people have done. They have tried to prove it is an error, and they have failed. They have found supposed contradictions, and then they were proven wrong. They have tested it for accuracy, and it is passed at the turn of every single page. 
It is certain that not everything in the Bible has yet been proven true, but it is also certain that nothing in the Bible has been proven false. There is a great difference between the two. The latter removes any reason to ever read it again. The former challenges us to continue seeking out what it says, knowing that it has been proven right. This allows us to be confident that it will continue to be right in everything else that is unknown. Trust the Word of God. It is a faithful friend that will never let you down. And above all, trust Jesus, who is the focal point of the entire Word. I tell you with 100% confidence that He will never, no, never, ever let you down. Absolutely 100%. Trust Jesus. He is the source of all goodness in this world. He is the creator of who you are. He is the redeemer if you are willing to allow him. He is everything. He is our all in all if we will just allow it in our lives. So think on Jesus. Consider what he has done. And remember that God created everything. There's no evil in God. When you see the evil in the world, you have to say, look at what we have done. That's a lack of goodness. Evil isn't really anything in and of itself. And so when people say, well, there's evil in the world and God created evil, they have not thought the issue through. Rather, we have brought about a lack of goodness in what God has done. And the entire point of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation 22 is God's restoration of the perfection that he had originally made. But there's something better at the end than was at the beginning. And that something is Jesus. God himself shows us how much he loves us by going through all of this stuff in order to get us to a good end. Please consider Jesus. Believe that Christ came, that he lived the perfect life that you can't live, that he died in fulfillment of the law that he put himself under, and which he wrote, by the way. I mean, the same God that died, that came in human flesh to die on the cross is the same God that gave the law to Israel. So he put himself under that burden. He lived it perfectly. He died in fulfillment of it. He was buried and he rose again, proving that he had no sin of his own and that you are cleansed from your sin. Please believe this simple gospel message. The Bible says when you do, you'll be sealed with God's spirit. It is the guarantee of your salvation. And someday he will come for us. Man, I can't wait for that day. As Chuck said when he was singing for us today, to stand before the Lord without a wicked thought in your head, without an evil inclination in your heart, I can't imagine how wonderful that's going to be. When I stand and praise him right now, it's like there's a hypocrite standing in my birthday suit. I'm standing there and I've got these wicked thoughts going in my mind, even while I'm praising him, because that's who we are as human beings. But he's going to erase all of that and it'll be purity of worship between man and God someday. I can't wait for it. Call on Jesus today. Our closing verse comes from 2 Timothy 3. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Next week is Joshua 13, it's verses 15 through 33. It is where we are set to go, so we are headed toward, it's entitled, An Inheritance by Jericho Eastward. That'll be your 28th Joshua sermon. And I'll tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? 
Trust Jesus. Follow him. I got something to ask you here. I did not write down a question this week, so I got to find one very quickly. And so I am going to do that. Um, this is going to be a hard one. I've already got what I want in my mind by turning that. This is going to be a hard one. But somebody's going to get it because somebody read this like last night. This is the point. I want you to read your Bible. And by giving you a question each week to challenge you, then you will be right. You will be vindicated when it comes along. I'm going to give you a $10 Chick-fil-A gift certificate if you can get this question right. What chapter is wrong? What chapter are the healing waters out of the side of the altar found in the book of Ezekiel? What chapter of Ezekiel? Told you this was going to be hard. What chapter are the healing waters of Ezekiel. What chapter of Ezekiel are they found? The ones that come out of the side of the altar and go down to the Dead Sea. 30, 34. 34, 39. 31. 31. Okay, nobody's going to get it. I'm sorry. We'll be doing this all day. It's chapter 47. I can't believe somebody didn't get that. 47. Uh, if you add 7 to 39. That's true. Then it might work. Maybe not. Okay, that's okay. We got another week and you guys will be studying your Bible harder this week, I hope. Okay, I had to come up with them because I forgot this week and I get here on Sunday and I'm so busy doing stuff that I forget to get a question. So hard one for you. I hate to tell you this though. I really would have gotten that one right. I promise you. I just know that because I'm going to tell you why I know that. It's because when you go through Ezekiel and you get to the part where he's describing the temple, that is one of the hardest passages in all of the Bible for me to read. It's very, it's just, it's this long, it's this high, it's this thick, and it goes on for chapter after chapter. And when you get to ver chapter 47, you're just like, healing waters. And I, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, it's just difficult because my mind doesn't, Sergio probably loves that because he thinks in these analytical ways. I don't, I'm like here and here and here. So, yeah, so I, I just don't have, the other one that I find very difficult to read is the book of Proverbs in the single Proverbs, not in the, the wisdom at the beginning and at the end, but in the single Proverbs. It's one proverb, it's another, it's not, and it's thought after thought and accumulates so quickly you can't remember them all. And I think, isn't that a great thought? And I get to the next one and I forget what the last one was. Hard for me to remember. So there you go. Uh, I got a poem for you, Lord's Supper. Now, therefore, divide this land. Now, Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, yes, Joshua, he addressed, you are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains, all the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Geshurite, from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron, northward, which is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ash." the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, and the Ekronites, also the Avites, so many ites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Me'ara that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Afek, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gabalites, all the Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath, where Hamath lies. All the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon, as far as the brook Misraphot, so the record does tell, and all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide it by lot as an inheritance, so you shall do as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land as inheritance, 
divide it this way, to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With the other half-tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites, receiving their inheritance measured out by cord, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, as had given them Moses, the servant of the Lord. From Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Mediba, as far as Debon, all the land that is there seen. All the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead and the border of the Geshurites and Maacathites, all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan as far as Salka, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtarot and Edrei too, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. Their land he did accrue. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, so they did not obey. But the Geshurites and the Maacathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. Only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them, as he did tell. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for this precious word, and thank you for the precision of the detail, which assures us that the precision of the detail in our salvation is equally so. We know that Israel had an inheritance, and you spent all of that time detailing it for us and re-detailing it. And throughout the New Testament, we're told about our salvation, we're explained our salvation, and we're told again about our salvation. We are assured of what you have given, because you are the faithful God Thank you for your faithfulness, even in our state of unfaithfulness. How great you are, O God. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.